you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Uh, if you can multitask, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, how many of you still read the newspaper? Show of hands. Anyone? Okay. Uh, when you read the newspaper, do you start with the front page? Or like me, do you jump to the sports section? Uh, maybe you go to the comics or uh, the business side of things. But I'd be willing to say that not very many of you start with the obituaries. When you pick up a newspaper, you don't read it to find out who's died. That's not what you're interested in. In fact, unless we know somebody who's in there, we try to skip over that section. The truth is, we try to avoid thinking about death at all costs. In fact, we don't even like to call it death. We say their candle has blown out, or they flatlined or they kick the bucket, or they're pushing up daisies. We don't even like to say the word death. But once in a while, we're reminded of the fact that all of us one day will die. I guess for me, it's when I officiate or attend a funeral, it gets me thinking about what happens next. What is the afterlife going to be like? To be honest, this isn't the most pleasant topic to talk about. I don't like to talk about death. You probably don't like to hear about death. But listen, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 4, a wise person thinks a lot about death. And someone has said the purpose of this life is to prepare for the next. And so maybe one of the most helpful things we can do in living this life is to ask some questions about the afterlife, about death. Uh, Parents, your kids, did they ever go through this stage where they're curious and scared about any room that doesn't have the light turned on? Uh, I always thought it was so interesting. All of our kids did this when they were younger. Um, They were at a certain age, they would go into a dark room and they would be half scared slash half fascinated, half intrigued. And when they go in, they're a little scared, but they want to know what's in there. And and so they say, well, what's in there, daddy? Daddy. Or they'd look over to, to a closet that has the light turned off and, and, and they'd want to know what's in there. And you can't help but wonder what's hidden in the darkness. I think when it comes to death, we are half scared and half fascinated. We're intrigued. And so in the next few moments, what I want to do is I want to turn on the light and I want to talk a little bit about that room. What happens when we die? Where do we go? How long do we stay there? How long does it take to get there? How can I be sure where I'll end up? That's a good question to ask. And these questions are huge questions because they not only affect this life, but of course they affect all of eternity. A while back, Howard Stern said on his radio show, here's what happens when you die. You sit in a box and get get eaten by worms. I guarantee you when you die, nothing cool happens. Well, you can take Howard's word for it if you want to, or you can listen to what the Son of God has to say about the topic. And so in the next few minutes, I want to read a story from Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 19. Jesus tells a story, and it's a very interesting story. It sounds like it could be the storyline for a Hollywood movie. And then after the story, we're going to make some observations of what Jesus teaches us on the afterlife. So with your Bible turned to Luke chapter 16, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 16, beginning in verse 
19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Scholars have long debated whether or not this story Jesus tells is a parable. That is, is it a fictional story that Jesus tells to make a point, or is what he's describing an actual event? It feels like when read, it's more like a parable, but it's interesting to note that if it's a parable, it's the only parable Jesus ever tells where he uses a man's actual name. A specific name is given. So I lean with the interpretation that it's an actual event. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter if it's a parable or if it's a real story, because what Jesus teaches here is the truth. He gives us some insight on what happens one minute after death. I want to make a few observations, and then we're going to spend a little more time on the third one. The first thing that happens one minute after death is you will still be alive. Listen to verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And when the physical body wore out, he continued to exist. And the Bible teaches that as men and women, we are more than physical beings. This man is not just a physical body, he is soul and spirit. And the truth is, I mean, I could have both my arms and legs amputated and I would still be the same person inside. I could have a heart transplant, I could have my spleen and appendix removed and I'd still be me. In fact, I've read that the cells of the human body completely replace themselves every seven years. And so that means that there's not a part of you physically that's the same as it was seven years ago. U.S. News and World Report had a featured article entitled, Is There Life After Death? And it said, near-death experiences may be physiological or they may be peoples into the world beyond. And they quoted a man named Bruce Grayson, who's a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia Medical School. 
And Bruce Grayson says, those who have had out-of-body experiences become enamored with the spiritual part of life and less so with possessions and power and prestige. And it also quoted Nancy Evans Bush, president of the National Association for Near-Death Studies. And she said, most near-death survivors say they don't think there is a God, they know there is a God. And in this article in U.S. News and World, World Report, they also quoted Dr. Raymond Moody. He's written a book on life after death where he interviewed 150 near-death patients. And Moody tells about one woman who suffered respiratory arrest, and she saw the doctors after she died pounding on her body. She was looking down, and she remembered saying, leave me alone, leave me alone. And later she explained that she didn't want to come back. And he interviewed one doctor who told of a man who attended his clinic. The man was pronounced dead, but the doctor succeeded in resuscitating him. And get this, the man sued the doctor for bringing him back to his miserable existence. He didn't want to come back. There was one man interviewed who was blind, and he told how out of his body he could see. And he explained that he could look down on the room and he could see the doctors and what they were doing. He'd never seen them before. And yet he was able to describe in great detail what they looked like. And yet when they brought him back to life, he was still blind. 2 Corinthians 5 describes the body as just a tent. It's this temporary housing, temporary dwelling for our eternal souls. So one minute after death, you may not have a physical body, but you are still very much alive. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So one minute after death, you'll still be alive. Here's another truth from the story. One minute after death, your money will not matter. It didn't matter that this man was rich and powerful on earth. The moment he died, all of his money and all of his possessions were worthless. There's something that happens at a funeral that not a lot of people know about, but after the funeral is over, before the casket is closed for the last time and everyone has gone outside, all that's left is usually the minister, the immediate family, or maybe just the funeral director. But before the casket is closed for the last time, the director will walk over to the casket, and unless otherwise instructed by the family, he will remove all the valuable items from the person who has passed away. So he'll remove the diamond earrings, the gold necklaces, the expensive watch, the rings from the fingers, and then the casket will be closed for the last time. It's death's final reminder, hey, you can't take it with you. One minute after death, you'll still be alive. One minute after death, your money, your possessions will not matter. But here's what's most important. One minute after death, you will know your eternal destiny. You will know your eternal destiny. Listen again to verse 22 and 23. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. 
Several years ago, Time Magazine did an article entitled, Does Heaven Exist? And they asked 1,000 American adults, do you believe in the existence of heaven where you go to live with God forever after you die? And 81% of the people surveyed said, yes, I believe in heaven. 13% said they did not. And the survey also asked, immediately after death, which of the following do you think will happen to you? Do you think you will go to heaven or go to hell? What do you think is going to happen to you? 61% said that they would go directly to heaven. 15% said that they would go to a place called purgatory. 5% said that they would be reincarnated. 4% said that death just ends their existence. And 1% said that they would go to hell. Well, the news is not good for all. Because we read here in Luke 16 that the man went to hell. He didn't go to hell because he was rich. That had nothing to do with it. He went to hell because his trust was not in God. He trusted himself. He trusted in his own wealth, his own riches, and his own power. And as much as I don't like to speak about death, I especially don't like to speak about hell. I guess because it conjures up these negative images of this fire and brimstone preacher who says things like flip or fry, turn or burn, change your stroke or go up and smoke. And that's just not how I want to be remembered. And yet all of us, I think, have some questions about hell. How could a loving God send someone to a place of eternal torment? It's uncomfortable to talk about hell. It's a lot easier to say, when you die, the angels take you to Abraham's side. It's, it's even easier to say, well, when you die, nothing happens. You just die and that's it. The, the candle's blown out. I would believe in hell if Jesus mentioned it just one time, but the Bible mentions it 54 times. And in this story, it teaches us that hell is a horrible place. Verse 23 talks about hell being a place of torment where he longed just to have some water to dip his finger in and to place on his tongue. He says, I'm in agony in this fire. Hell is also a place of deprivation. It's a place where there's thirst, but no relief for that thirst exists. But water isn't the only missing ingredient in hell. In hell, there's no one to love, and there's no one who cares for you. There's no shoulder to put an arm around. There's no fellowship. There's no sympathy. Hell is a place of emotional suffering. Several times when Jesus talks about hell, he calls it a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's emotional suffering. It's eternal sadness. Hell is also a place of relational suffering. Some people joke about hell being this big party for all of eternity, and they're missing the point. Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness. In other words, it's a place of complete loneliness. C.S. Lewis said, hell is nothing but yourself for all of eternity. Hell is a place of spiritual suffering. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, in hell, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. It's a place where we are separated from God. I guess that's what makes hell so horrible is it's completely void of anything that is God. His presence is not there 
in any way. It's as if God is saying to us, you chose not to have me a part of your life on earth, and I will honor that choice, and I will have nothing to do with you for all of eternity. Hell is a place of permanence. When the rich man begged for relief, Abraham said, hey, there's a chasm that has been fixed between you and me. You can't come over here, and we can't come over there. There's no way out. And there's some people who debate on whether or not hell is a place where the soul is tormented forever or whether there's a certain amount of punishment and then that stops. But I guess what bothers me, what concerns me, is in Matthew 25, the same word is used to describe the eternity of hell as it does the eternity of heaven. It says some will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. But here's the truth, and this is really important. God does not want anyone to go to hell. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is so desperate to spend eternity with you that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. Literally, God would rather die than spend eternity without you. The Bible teaches that those who accepted this gift of God will spend eternity in heaven. And in our story, the poor man Lazarus was taken by angels to Abraham's side. The NIV study Bible describes Abraham's side as the place of blessedness to which the righteous dead go to await future vindication. Now, as you know, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And when people in the Old Testament died, when they lived under the Old Testament law before Jesus died, they went to this place known as Abraham's side. And that's where they waited for their future vindication. But once Jesus Christ died, it paved the way for us to go immediately with the Father. And so the Bible nowhere talks about, after Jesus dies, about a waiting room about this place where we all go and read magazines until we wait for that final day. It doesn't talk about that. When Jesus died, it paved the way for us to immediately go to the Father. Remember, Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Believers are given the promise in Scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so what will heaven be like? The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on heaven. To be honest, it would be more than we could imagine anyway. But there are a few chapters in Revelation where John describes how incredible heaven will be. First, the Bible describes that heaven is a place of delicious food. Revelation 19 verse 9 talks about the supper of the Lamb. It will be a place of great food. We know that Jesus ate in his resurrected body, and we will be able to eat in heaven. And maybe the best part of heaven is no one will be counting calories. We can eat whatever we want, and there'll be no repercussions. We can just enjoy it. But the most important thing that will take place is there will be a satisfaction for our starving souls. It will be a place where we are spiritually satisfied. We will find contentment for our spiritual appetite. The Bible also describes heaven as a place of incredible beauty. The New Jerusalem is described as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
The streets and the walls and the gates are said to be made of valuable jewels. For those of you who enjoy breathtaking scenery, heaven will be the ultimate. God created the wonders of this world in seven days. Imagine what he's doing with heaven. It will also be a place of delightful rest. Revelation promises that those who die as Christians rest from their labor. And in chapter 14, verse 13, it describes this life. Can you imagine what it will be like to have no more pressure, no more stress, no more deadlines, no more bills? We can just relax knowing that God is completely in control. Heaven is also described as a place of meaningful service. Revelation 22, verse 3 says that the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. In other words, you will find significance in the task that you are given in heaven. We will do so much more than sit around on clouds and play harps. We will have meaningful, significant tasks. Heaven will also be a place of loving relationships. Think of the joy of being reunited with with children and parents, with loved ones and, and, and spouses and grandparents and Christian friends who have preceded us in death. Heaven will also be a place of great happiness. We read that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more wheelchairs, no more cancer, No more loneliness, no more depression or rejection. And lastly, we read that heaven is a place of uninhibited worship. The greatest thing about heaven is we will see Jesus Christ face to face. We will know our creator and the way he originally wanted us to know him. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, We will join in the multitude singing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. And just think of the thrill of worshiping God as you see him. Being able to see the smile that it puts on his face. Well, in Revelation, John helps us understand this place that he has prepared for those who love him. And he attempts to paint a picture of what heaven is like. And he gives it his best shot. He uses beautiful imagery, but I think as John gets to the end of Revelation, he knows that he he hasn't quite captured it. We just can't imagine how good it is. One of my friends was a missionary in Africa, and from time to time while he was there, he would tell people what America is like, you know, the good parts. And for them, it was just too much to imagine. It's beyond their ability. And so as he described, he could tell that it just wasn't quite connecting with them. I mean, how can a guy who's never used electricity imagine the lights of Las Vegas? How can a guy who's, who's never taken a hot shower picture the hot tub in your backyard? How can a guy who lives in a hut imagine what it's like to have a four-bedroom house with AC? Well, you do your best to describe it, but, but they don't have the capacity to imagine. But my friend learned that he can describe America much more effectively in a different way, by describing what America is not. And so he can say, If you lived where I'm from, then you wouldn't be hungry all the time. And if you lived where I'm from, 
then you wouldn't be homeless. And if you lived where I'm from, then you wouldn't have to walk for miles to find medical help. And that seems, he says, to make more sense to them by explaining what it is not rather than what it is. And John takes this approach at the end of Revelation. After trying to say, here's what it is, but but knowing that we can't imagine it, he finally ends Revelation by saying what it is not. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. As we finish up, the last thing that I want to leave you with is that one minute after you die, you will not have a second chance. In verse 27, the rich man says to Abraham, I beg you, give me another chance. And God says, no. You won't have another chance to make things right with God. And you won't have another chance to tell people about this truth. The reality is the most loving thing we can do is talk to people about their eternal destination and think about it ourselves. Let's say that you're eating at a restaurant with your family and the restaurant is crowded, and uh, you leave your table to go to the restroom, and as you're going to the restroom, you see a window into the kitchen, and as you look in, you see that there's a fire in the kitchen that has gotten out of control. What would you do? Well, you would immediately rush into the dining area, and you would tell everybody, there's a fire in the kitchen. We need to get out of here. Go to your nearest exit. You would shout as loudly as you needed to in order to to save everyone. And, And maybe the customers wouldn't want to hear it. You know, because you'd be um, disrupting their meal, interrupting their conversations. They may not believe you. For a few seconds, they may question whether or not you're out of your mind or whether you really know what you're talking about. But you would still feel compelled to warn them. In fact, if you left without warning them, then you could get in trouble for negligence. And I think that's the right attitude to have as we think about heaven and hell. It's not a lot of fun to think about. It's not a lot of fun to talk about. But we have a responsibility to do both. As we close, I want to remind you that your whole life is to be spent preparing for the next life. And there's a few simple things we can do so that we don't have to worry one minute after death. First, put your trust in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says, Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, we can be confident of how we're going to spend the next life. One minute after death, the only thing that will matter is your relationship with him. So put your trust in Jesus. The second thing I would encourage you is to invest in eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 and 8 says, It's a wonderful thing to be alive. If a person lives to be very old, let him rejoice in every day of life. But let him also remember that eternity is far longer and everything down here is futile in comparison.
And your time on earth isn't long. It's just a moment, just a breath, just a vapor. So invest it wisely. Dr. Herschel Hobbes was a well-known Baptist preacher. He was a prolific author, writing over 104 books, pastored for over 50 years. And he was a spectacular Bible scholar. But he recounts his wife asking him his most difficult question of his ministry. While dying of cancer, she looked up to Dr. Hobbes and she said, Herschel, what will it be like when I die? And Dr. Hobbes, with all of his theological training, his extensive knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, and his seven decades of experience in the ministry had not prepared him to answer this one question from his dying wife. After thinking about it for a moment, he said to his wife, Honey, I'm not exactly sure what that moment will be like, but I do know this for sure. I will sit here and I will hold your hand on this side of heaven until Jesus comes to take your hand to the other side. And that is the hope and the confidence that we can have when we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't think it's just me that doesn't like talking a whole lot about death or about hell. But God, these are some of the most important questions that we can ever ask, that we can ever find answers to, because God, they affect all of eternity. And God, as believers, we shouldn't be scared, but we should be excited about eternity. We should be excited that that when we die, we, we don't die, we just enter into life as you have created it to really be. So God, I pray that those of us who are believers, that we would feel compelled to tell others about the hope of heaven, about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we can have hope and that we can have confidence. But God, I especially want to pray for those who are in here, those who are watching or listening, who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God, would they know that they don't have to wonder about eternity, but they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they can experience the forgiveness of sins. They can have the hope of eternity in heaven with Jesus. And God, that's what we all need. We need hope. So I pray that nobody would leave this service today without having hope. God, thank you for preparing a way for us. We can talk about it, we can imagine, but we cannot fully grasp what it is that you have prepared for those who love you. And for that, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.